a newsreel from 1967. August 6, 1945. On that day, the nuclear age burst upon the Earth with the flash and fire from the first atom bomb. The target was Hiroshima. A second A-bomb three days later was loosed on Nagasaki, bringing to an end the war that began on the day of infamy. Below is Hiroshima after the bomb. Only the ashes remained of what was once the most thriving city of western Honshu, Japan's biggest island. Of the almost seven square miles of the city, only about three remained. Viewing the obliterated city, the emptiness, it was hard to believe that Hiroshima was once a teeming metropolis of narrow, crooked streets, of congested, low-storied wood structures, of people literally rubbing elbows as they trudged their way on the sidewalks and unpaved roads. As the citizens of Hiroshima rebuilt their city from scratch, a fervent feeling grew that there would be no more Hiroshimas. Peace became the motive and inspiration in tasks of reconstruction. Certain ruins were preserved to mark the very spot over which the A-bomb was known to have exploded. Yes, Hiroshima had come back from the greatest blow inflicted on a city in modern times. But beneath the facade of the bustling metropolis remained the memory of the dazzling, awful second at 8.15 a.m. on August 6, 1945. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Helsley, and today we are celebrating one event and acknowledging another with extreme sadness. The first is an unexpectedly hugely successful open of a movie about an extremely important and influential American that at least I thought nobody but a college professor or a crazy History Channel nerd had even heard of. His name is Julius Robert Oppenheimer. The name of the new movie is Oppenheimer, and it has reaped almost half a billion dollars in theater ticket sales worldwide in its first week, let me repeat that, ticket sales at an actual brick-and-mortar movie theater. This movie won't even be able to stream for we don't even know how many months yet. And I know you're saying, well, other movies in the past couple decades have made that much money. Good point. But comic book movies by Marvel and DC are about cherished characters, superhero characters that have existed for decades almost a hundred years. The movie Barbie, which is also doing incredibly well, is about a sexy girl doll that one out of three of almost every girls on the planet owned at one time. But folks, Oppenheimer is about a theoretical physics from the 40s. So come on. I mean, maybe one out of 25,000 Americans had even heard this guy's name before. Maybe, maybe. But I couldn't, as someone who loves history, I couldn't be more pleased that Americans are learning about their relatively recent history. Now, the second event is linked to the first, but it's a great deal sadder, a very great deal sadder, and that is the 78th anniversary of the dropping of the first atomic bomb on a human population at Hiroshima, Japan. 
And the reason these vents are linked is because the theoretical physicist we were just talking about, Oppenheimer, oversaw the building of the Hiroshima bomb. So Ellie is taking the week off, but I am still joined by our brilliant artificial intelligence engine, Bernice. Bernice, how are you? I'm running at optimum. So let me get this straight. You're celebrating a man primarily responsible for inventing a weapon with the potential to destroy everyone on Earth? That's one way to look at it. I think Oppenheimer initially thought he was saving millions of lives and even possibly in eliminating the, the future of wars altogether. Sounds quite naive, especially for a genius. But it is said he made excellent martinis. Well, after the first bombs were dropped on natural cities with real people, and he saw the results, he reversed themselves. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. And I am joined by two guests, Cassia and Dylan, who, by nature of where they have lived until recently, offer some great insights into this episode's topics. Cassia, of course, listeners will remember, was the co-founding host of this podcast and will join us a little bit later. But for now, we have Dylan. So Dylan, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be back. And it's great to have you back. So Dylan, before we get started, you should share with our audience the podcast that you and Cassia produce. Yeah, we have a podcast called Unburied Books, and we read our way through the New York Review of Book Classic series. They republish books that have gone out of print and bring it back into, you know, the modern audience so people can read these great works of literature. And it's been a great journey sort of reading our way through this series and discovering new books and getting to talk about things. And we have really interesting guests on that are experts in those fields of the books or in the subject matter. And they, they always bring a lot of good information. So it's, it's been a really exciting journey. Awesome. Awesome. And we, our audience may know, I have put actual episodes into our feed and we will certainly put a link to their podcast on very books in the liner notes of this episode. Dylan, who was Oppenheimer? Well, I think, isn't that the sort of, the, if we could dive into the movie a bit, like that's sort of the subject of the movie. It reminded me a lot of Lawrence of Arabia, right. where it seemed like every scene there was a new character asking like Oppenheimer, who are you? What are you doing? <laughs> but at the very least, we can say he was a physicist, a scientist. He seemed to struggle a bit with the application and the mathematical side of the sciences, but he had a theoretical brain unlike most and was able to see and understand the quantum realm and and uh, things that you would need to understand about how to make a bomb using particles at the smallest amount to make a, the most massive explosion. And therefore he was a person that was put on in the lead of the Manhattan project and helped run the, the first group of people that would make a nuclear weapon and later would be used. Like you said, on the anniversary of, Hiroshima would be used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what was it like living so close to the home of not just a bomb, but nuclear power in general? It's odd, I would say. 
I think it permeates the culture in very simple ways, in almost innocuous ways, where we will ha- sell shirts and magnets with mushroom cloud explosions and stuff on it. And we have our own little museum in Albuquerque about nuclear energy and nuclear power. And even our AAA baseball team, um, we used to be called the Dukes because of the uh, Spanish colonialization into our state. But then in the early 2000s, I remember we we changed to the isotopes. So it, it's... <laughs> It's in part of every culture, this just idea of, you know, the scientific importance of this thing seems to just be a almost a kitschy thing in the main part of society nowadays. Right, right. So I and I've been to Albuquerque. I have family who live Alamogordo and I I get what you're saying, like going to the airport and all the stuff and, and the ever present feeling of the bomb was made here. Uh, sort of like the Statue of Liberty is in New York City or something. Yeah, that's a good comparison. But, I mean, is it does it pervade the culture in other ways, the bomb history? Because when those uh, original tests were done in the 40s, tens of thousands of people got very sick from radiation. They got cancer and many died. It's true. Uh, does that resonate? Yes and no, I would say. I think... I didn't really know too much about it until a few years ago. And I think that is something that isn't talked about enough as it should be. It's it's something you come across rather than it, it generally being public knowledge. But especially for the people that lived in those communities, they're called downwinders, where the wind took the nuclear fallout. Oh, wow. The people that live in those downwinder areas, it will probably exist a lot more for them than for someone in Albuquerque who, you know, is trying to be more of a tourist hype hey we built a bomb sort of thing they were the ones that actually had to live with the fallout and the consequences and you know i'm sure if you go there today you'll be able to talk to many people that are still being affected by the radiation poisoning cancer all these kinds of things and it's quite tragic and something that i think is becoming a growing knowledge in the community in albuquerque and in new mexico through activism and and awareness campaigns, but it's still more people will know the Albuquerque isotopes than the people that suffered in the the downwind areas. Hmm. But you told me earlier that the research laboratory in Los Alamos is still there, but it's not a top secret place with wood cabins, with no indoor plumbing or electricity, or surrounded by barbed wire and 500 Marines. Uh, like it was during World War II, but today it's actually a very desirable, affluent place to live in New Mexico. Is that right? Yes, it is, I'd say, easily the most expensive place to live in New Mexico, except for maybe parts of Santa Fe. (laughs) And I think that just sort of comes with the culture and the people that are there. I have a friend who lived in a suburb of Los Alamos and worked at Los Alamos National Laboratories, or as it's more commonly referred to as LANL, the acronym. Mm. It's got the highest PhDs per capita of any city in the country, if not the world. Wow. Because every, everyone there is basically doctoral engineers and scientists that are that are working on these the still secret scientific and military projects there. 
But that's not to say everyone is. I remember Cassia's mom almost moved there because she might have gotten a job at the labs, but more as um as a psychologist. But still, even if that job doesn't demand a doctoral engineering degree, it's still almost the entire working world of that city is is based around the labs. And I think the living conditions there as well are very affected by the labs where many parts of the city are inaccessible to the layman or woman that is in the, in the area. And in order to get into many places of the town, you have to show a card that you are working and cleared to be part of the labs. And once you get inside, according to my friend, you have to have this card showing on your person at all times. Otherwise, you will be pulled aside. Hmm. And when you leave, you have to hide it. So it can't, no one will really understand what it looks like unless, you know, you're, you're working there, which to be fair, in Los Alamos, you probably already know. But if there's any, um, you know, secret Russian spies walking around that part of the city, you, you need to make sure they don't, they're not seeing what the card looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Even like some of the famous trailheads and ski areas, you have to go through a checkpoint and give your driver's license to be able to access. Like every oh wow, it's it's a crazy place to live. Do we know what they're making at the lab? Are they still involved in military munitions or what else? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they do everything. The divisions have now gone just from military to like all walks of a general laboratory that you would find all over the country. But I remember my friend mentioning that living in Los Alamos, there's times where you'll hear explosions that they're testing in canyons nearby that oh, wow. like shake windows and sound like thunder on a clear day. And that would be kind of crazy to live with. Although I'm sure there's many towns around the world country it's just that one in particular you know that this is a place that built an atomic weapon the atomic weapon you might say and so having hearing those explosions that they're testing would be an interesting feeling to have unless you just start to take it for granted so the times i've spent in chicago for example and they've got the elevator unlike new york city their train is mostly elevated yeah so there's a lot of buildings that you can live in when the train comes by and if it's in the vicinity, your windows will rattle and it's almost around the clock and, you know, they come by every 10 minutes or something, but you just sort of tune it out and take it for granted. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do that. But she said, especially when she moved to the area with her family, it was alarming and I, I could see that she herself worked in the environmental division of the the lab. And a lot of her work had to do with raising the awareness and reduction of uh, these things called UXOs or unexploded ordinances, which are bombs or missiles or weaponry that have been left in the canyon that way that didn't go off. Oh my gosh. Uh, but are still considered live. And so if you find it and you mess with it in the wrong way or you step on it, uh, it could kill you. So I found an article talking about a child in the 60s found a, a bazooka and was was messing around with it and and that child died when it when it went off which oh man is just a terrifying thing so even with it long gone there is still these terrifying things about it and granted i think most of the weaponry she said out of like 
the main trail areas and stuff have been cleared. It's more if you tried to go off trail, which you shouldn't be doing anyway. But just to understand that the, the, these things are around and could be could be dangerous if you, if you wandered onto one. It just seems weird that after 80 years, they haven't been able to mine sweep the entire area, every yeah. inch of that place. Yeah, that's true. But mountains, especially around Los Alamos, are really rocky, really wooded. And that's something I'll, I'll skip a little bit into the movie. But yeah. I could tell that the town of Los Alamos they built in the movie. I don't know if the historical town is a little bit of a different than where the town is now. But it's it's not nearly as into the mountains as Los Alamos is. It seemed more like the desert foothills near the mountains rather than the mountains, mountains proper. But it's it's interesting because when you live in New Mexico, there's a lot of flat desert land with these mountains or rivers that will come out of nowhere. And you can almost tell exactly right. where you are at any point in New Mexico. So whenever a movie films in New Mexico, I can almost immediately be like, oh, that's where they are. And in this movie, I could tell that, especially at the Trinity site, much more south of the Trinity site that they had in the movie, which to be fair, they can't film on the actual Trinity site. It is still a, a top secret military base. But I could see in the Trinity site in the movie, the Sandia Mountains, which are sort of the border of Albuquerque to the east, sort of in the distance, probably towards the north. And I, th- I think they were filming maybe around the Blinn area, a little east into the desert. But I haven't looked at the filming locations online to check if I was correct. But I, I, I feel like I could, I could make an educated guess about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the nature in New Mexico is amazing. I, I, I do want to mention one thing that's interesting, I think. Okay. The mountain Los Alamos is built on is actually an extinct volcano that blew up and now has like a crater surface on top of the mountain and stuff. And I've always found it interesting that, you know, this place where they built a, a massive weapon was a, a volcano millions of years ago. And so it's almost like explosions. Millions of years ago. Explosions okay. were part of this place from the beginning. That is an irony, isn't it? Sort of having like, oh, hey, let's go to Vesuvius and build a bomb. Yeah, there. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> So what did you think of the movie overall and its historical accuracy? Well, according to some, this is quote unquote, the most historically accurate biography of all time. But I mean, they'll always try to say things like that in marketing. It's always hard to know how historically accurate this is, though, because so much of this is still top secret and comes more through, you know, historical journals. And I think especially American Prometheus, which is sort of based around Oppenheimer's work himself. And this movie's based on that. The movie does a right. good job, I think, especially how Nolan described it, where he wanted it to be more of a subjective movie about what Oppenheimer experienced rather than what happened. And so we see things through Oppenheimer's eyes rather than trying to view them objectively. You know, the script itself said... I walk over to the window instead of Oppenheimer walks over into the window. It was a first person script. And, and that's very unusual. It's incredibly unusual. You're a movie guy. So yeah. Yeah. Especially for a movie this big, but for the movie itself, I don't know. what did you think of the movie itself then? Well, it's really long, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, people said, oh, yeah, I know it's three hours. It'll fit, you know, but it'll just fly by. I wouldn't say that it flew by. It felt longer than three hours to me. Now, that said, it's a great movie. I mean, when you sit down to watch Lawrence of Arabia or Gone with the Wind or some other really long epic, you know what you're getting into. And it's and I've been trying to read the book that is based on American Prometheus, but I was only a third of the way through. So I really didn't know all the ins and outs of what was going to happen. But the performances are uh, incredible. It's definitely very faithful to the book and the book won a Pulitzer Prize. And so it's highly, highly regarded as being factual. It took, uh, it was the effort of two authors who took 25 years of their lives to write it. So that's a lot of researching. So yeah, I mean, the script is almost, there are word for word quotes right out of the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he literally, everything in that movie was in that book. I mean, it may not, now it's got a very unusual structure as we were discussing where it tries to have like four different storylines going on simultaneously at different points of Oppenheimer's life or his, his adversary's life. And then he intercuts back and forth between them and they all move forward. They all have a beginning, a middle and the end, but they're not in sync. So one of the timelines is 20 years in the future. Another timeline is, you know, 20 years in the past. So it, but that Nolan loves to do that kind of stuff, right? Screw with time and, and the linear nature of time. So, uh, you know, I, I give it four out of five stars, but it was it was a fantastic history lesson for me. I loved it. I might in, in disagree with you. I think the movie moved okay. fast. Okay. It was almost wow. unstoppable for me in a way. And this is maybe a ridiculous criticism of the movie that people bandy about when they really like it. But I wish it was longer in a way. Wow. And not in which I wish it had more... <laughs> I wish um, I'm going to go to a scene that I really liked, but I wish was longer and a little bit better executed. The the first hour, especially, I think, had this sort of thing where Oppenheimer meets a man named Robbie on a train who sort of becomes this um, moral compass and voice of reason to Oppenheimer throughout the movie. And they are relating to each other that they're Americans that are living in Europe and they're Jewish and, you know, they're worried about the growing anti-Semitism in Germany and stuff. And it's a really great scene, but I feel like this, the movie, if I have one criticism, it's, it, it feels like it has to do these things and it has to show it, but it has to keep moving. And I wish we took more time to just sort of sit with the conversation, draw out the interaction a little bit longer. Um, it, the cutting was non-stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think once we got more into the out of backstory and more into the action where we're building the bomb or where we're fighting in the courtroom in the third act, I think that sort of nonstop almost montage filmmaking where it never really sat down for a scene. It was just showing something intercut with something else, montaging through these parts of what's going on. I think it worked a lot better then. And so. I, sh- I I did struggle with the first hour, but I think by the end, I understood its language more. It felt like a revolutionary language in cinema. Um, something I've only seen maybe recreated in the Social Network or Scorsese's Casino were two movies that I related that sort of pace and style to. But I I did think it was incredible. Like you said, the performances are amazing. So many, like, just that guy, great supporting actor performances come in. 
for a scene or two. I think, I don't know, the guy that played Robbie, David Krumholtz, was a standout for me. I really enjoyed Casey Affleck, who comes in for a single scene, who was a this American-born Russian who later fought in the Bolshevik War and basically tortured scientists into revealing if they were a spy or not. And him sort of interacting with Oppenheimer in a very cold, quiet way. I thought he was terrifying. I loved his performance. Which, uh, okay, is Casey Affleck in any relation to Ben Affleck? Yeah, it's his younger brother. Oh, okay. And and which character was he again? I'm so there's to... a part where Oppenheimer is talking about a liaison that he doesn't want to state the name of. And right. he meets... Oh, oh, the guy who plays the, the head intelligence officer. Yeah, one of those head intelligence officers. And he's... Right. Matt Damon's describing to Oppenheimer, like, this guy will, like, take people out onto boats and in- interrogate them, quote-unquote, Russian style. Right, right. Gotcha. He was, gotcha he was, yeah, you're right. He was pretty scary. Yeah, he was terrifying. I think Robert Downey Jr. has to be a frontrunner for Supporting Actor of the Year. He is... Yeah, he really stretched beyond Iron Man on this one, didn't he? I know. He? <laughs> um, He's really a good actor. Probably his best performance since Zodiac. It felt so good to see him like really get something to act with. Mm-hmm. From just being this like cool, calm senator at the beginning to just this man who is unraveled by the end of the movie. And in a similar way, I think Killian Murphy is incredible as Oppenheimer. In a similar way, is like... Well, he's always yeah, he's, he's really he's good. always unraveled, but by the end of the movie, it's it's a new level of a man destroyed. I think this final scene he has where he sort of has to reckon with the consequences of his actions. It's intense. He performs that intensity well. So, Bernice, let's quickly skip through history. Oppenheimer and General Leslie Groves the builder of the Pentagon, and overall supervisor for the Manhattan Project, populated Los Alamos with a total of 4,000 scientists, their wives, and children. And between 1942 and 1945, they built two different nuclear bombs. Can you tell us about that? That is correct. The first was a fission bomb that used uranium-235, a highly radioactive substance, as its explosive material. Nuclear fission is a reaction in which the nucleus of an atom splits into two or more smaller nuclei. The fission process releases a very large amount of energy, making it extremely destructive within its blast radius. The first bomb of this style was nicknamed Little Boy. The second bomb was an implosion fusion design that relied on plutonium as its explosive material. Plutonium is also radioactive and regarded as even more dangerous than uranium. The first bomb of this style was nicknamed Fat Man. Thanks, Bernice. And after almost three years and $2 billion, which would be $34 billion in 2023 money, Oppenheimer's team didn't even have a finished product. (laughs) They didn't even have a deliverable. But facing an imminent land invasion of Japan by the Allies, which could kill over a million people on both sides, estimated, the U.S. government pressured Oppenheimer and Groves to immediately test and produce the final bombs that were mentioned above and that they had promised. They hoped that this could end the war quickly. Bernice, they did have a successful test, didn't they? How and when did that occur? Trinity was the code name of the first detonation of a nuclear weapon. 
it was conducted by the United States Army at 5.29 a.m. Mountain Time on July 16, 1945, as part of the Manhattan Project. The test was conducted in the Hornada del Muerto Desert about 35 miles southeast of Socorro, New Mexico. Even up to the last minute, it was still uncertain whether the detonation of the device would result in the explosive effect the team of inventors were seeking. Three, two, one. However, Trinity did detonate and yielded an unheard of explosion comparable to 26 kilotons of TNT, in magnitude. As this exceeded all expectations, the Trinity test was considered extremely successful and preparations continued to drop a bomb on locations in Japan. TNT is still a standard used today to measure explosive magnitude. So, we are welcoming back the podcast co-founder, Kasia. You actually visited the site where this so-called Trinity test took place July 15th, 1945. And apparently there's a limited number of times in, in a single year, because it's still a top secret uh, military installation, that they will let people come in. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And how did you get in? Yes, thank you for having me. Yes, it is a popular tourist site. However, because it is in the middle of a functioning missile range, access is limited to two days a year. Two so days a year. Okay. Those, yeah, in one day in April and one day in October. And when I moved to New Mexico, it was just before the pandemic. And it was something that I was interested in doing. I'm not really sure why, but... <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting question why do people want to visit a site of a nuclear test or a nuclear disaster why are we fascinated is there anything it? there or is it like a civil war battlefield it's just an open field and they said okay this is where gettysburg took place what do you what it's, do you think it's a civil war battlefield more or less okay they've They've very half-heartedly thrown a couple things out there, but uh, they're pretty lame. Sorry, long story short, the pandemic shut it down for several years. And so oh, I, went, okay, right. I went to one of the first reopenings. And uh, it's a bit of a pain in the ass if you're coming from Albuquerque, because you have to be there quite early in the morning and wait in line with all of these cars until they open the gates. And you'll see, I mean... So not everybody gets to get in? You have to be I think one of the lucky few? Does. I think everybody probably does, depending on where you go in. It's it's kind of complicated. It's not that interesting, the different, like, entry points that you can go to. But I had to rent, like, I had to go and stay in a motel the night before. Mm. So I could show up at the right time. And wait in this line of cars, many of which I was astonished. You know, people come from all over the country. People are there with RVs. Wow. You know, people are in rental cars because they've specifically cut. Like, I was only doing this because I was in New Mexico. And it's like, why the hell not? Right. It's not like there's a ton of other things to do. But people do It's like this. getting into Yosemite or something. People do this. You know, they make this a priority. They get on planes, trains, and automobiles to come to the <laughs> for some godforsaken reason. Uh, and then you get in a parking lot once you drive through this, like, abandoned, like, vaguely creepy military site. There's this giant place. They have little booklets 
with information about the test, about the bomb, about the site, about what else that area is used for. One of the things I found interesting about it is that it's all kind of run and coordinated and chaperoned by like army dudes. So it's not it's not like a national park or something. It's really owned by the military. So all the no. people running it are going to in uniform. No. And so suddenly, like all of these guys who who knows what they do for like their normal work day are now suddenly having to like point to people where the porta potties are and like get people to mm. stand in a line. And it's like, you know, a 19 year old guy being like, please, ma'am, get in, get in line for the bus to go see the, the little ranch house where they like put together the plutonium core or whatever. Mm. <laughs> Do but, they have the bunker that Oppenheimer was in when he was watching? No, no. So sorry, sorry. let me tell you what they actually have because it's, okay. it's, it's really not that, that much. So you see like off to one side, they have this fenced in area and that's where the site actually was. And there is a little cairn or obelisk looking thing, cheap, cheapo little monument <laughs> that represents <laughs> where the site was. And let me let's just quickly read to you what it says. I, I saw a picture of it. it. It's basically sort of a, a mini, mini monolith with a plaque on it, right? Yes. It says, Trinity site where the world's first nuclear device was exploded on July 16th, 1945. Oh, July 16th. I've been misquoting. Um, and then there is one of the things that people get really freaking excited about for no reason is this big piece of metal called Jumbo. Mm -hmm. Right. What was Jumbo? Which super fans, super fans might know, is a huge steel container built specifically for the first bomb test. They were going to suspend the bomb in the center of Jumbo to try to contain it. It didn't actually end up happening. When their confidence in the plutonium bomb design grew, they decided not to use Jumbo. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So there were two types of bombs that they were building simultaneously. One was fission with uranium and one was implosion with using plutonium. And the one they decided to test was the plutonium one. Is that correct? Yes. So they still have Jumbo there. And mm -hmm. just to set the scene a little bit, when these mm -hmm. people see Jumbo and demographically, we're talking about History Channel viewers. We're talking about the people who watch Ken Burns documentaries. You're we're saying people like about, me. We're talking people about people like me, older white men of a certain tax bracket. <laughs> people like me. <laughs> That's who's here. Okay. Now, it's not. It's not the Gen Z hangout. That's oh, not okay. what's going on. I see. It's not an alcoholic playground for millennials. It's just like older Jews, kind of like. REI clothing, like they probably have a STEM degree or like wish they did. And so people see Jumbo and they're like, oh my God, it's Jumbo. Like they're greeting an old friend. They're like so excited. They're like, honey, go, go stand in front of Jumbo. Get, get in there. And people wait in line to climb into Jumbo and take their photo inside of it. Mm. And through Jumbo, you can see a line. But if it never got like, used, what is it doing there? Well, they buried it underground. It was placed under a steel tower 800 yards from ground zero. 
and it survived the blast. So it was present. Oh, okay. It was there. It, so it, it is an artifact, it's, yeah. It's a living piece of history, so they would have it. And so after after that excitement, you know, you can walk over to the little fenced-in playground slash nuclear test site where you actually see the obelisk. There is a big sign that says removal of Trinitite is theft of government property and can result in fines and jail time. However... And what is Trinitite for our audience? I can't really give you a scientific explanation, but basically it changed the sand into like this particular little rock thing when the bomb happened and people are really excited about stealing pieces of it. And the sign has clearly not deterred very many people because you can buy it like all over the place. Okay. (laughs) So it's still there. I would think after 80 years, it'd be like, uh, you know, it's been picked over by now. No, it's, it's still there. People, people like you see it gleaming there. You see the glitter. Oh my God. So people are filling their pockets with this stuff. They're making off like bandits. Oh, really? Okay, so this is like panning for gold or something, huh? They also sell it there. Oh, they sell it. Okay. They sell it there. Yeah, people people love this stuff. And it's not radioactive? You know, there was a sign saying how radioactive it was. And it's like fairly minor compared to other forms of radioactivity that we are exposed to throughout our lives, our modern lives. I'm sure you could find that information online. I don't have it at hand. It is still radioactive. Well, I know the half-life of uranium is 250 years. So, I mean, we got a ways to go before. But this wasn't uranium. This was plutonium. It, it is radioactive. It is. To some it's degree. just not deadly. It is. I mean, it's like getting an x-ray at the dentist or... It's... They consider it safe to have people there. So, yeah. But they, you know, they call a lot of things safe. Because I was listening to one podcast where they made... Uh, Geiger counters available like to to the visitors on this specific day you I, I guess you would rent them like you would rent a headset at a museum or something if you wanted them they did not they did not have that when okay. I was there maybe they've really like invested you know this mo- movie came out and they were like hey guys we gotta like invest some money gotta spend money let's to get some Geiger counters yeah Geiger counters. <laughs> <laughs> all right so an- another um, really exciting feature of this theme park is the corner of the tower that is still slightly stuck into the ground but you can still kind of see a little little bit of metal of the actual tower that held the actual first bomb okay it remains and people were pushing and shoving they were just fighting with each other to try to get to this, get a picture, share it with their friends and family. It was like seeing the Mona Lisa. It was incredible. Hmm. Did, did they bother to, like, so one point you took me to the Atomic Museum in Albuquerque and outside there they had a reproduction of the of the derrick that held the bomb the Trinity site bomb, and I have a picture of myself standing in front of it. Have they bothered to do a reconstruction of that derrick uh, there on the site? No. No, they just keep those. They have bothered. They have bothered to do very okay. little, and I would say that is my main critique of the site, given its importance historically, 
given the fact that people are still going out there to see it, you think that this would be an occasion deserving of a, you know, a kind of thoughtful curation explanation and acknowledgement of the harm that was caused to those in the community or those worldwide. But it's really not that. It's this rather shallow and voyeuristic, kind of like depressingly funny pilgrimage to celebrate the inauguration of the nuclear age, the age that we are still living in and that, you know, changed our lives permanently. Right, right. You think that we could, like, contemplate that. I'm not saying they need to, like, do a huge thing. It's it's owned by the military. I don't expect them to apologize. But they could acknowledge. It just, it seems weird to me. When you go to um, Mount Vernon, they're going to spend as much time talking about the slaves there than they as they will now about the family. Correct. This is not, that East Coast mentality has not made its way to the desert sands of New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> this is just all about the military. And that brings me to another charming point of the Trinity site, which is the merch truck. Probably after the steel, the tiny little infinitesimally small piece of the tower that remains, this is the most exciting destination. Credit cards accepted, all sales final. This is where you can buy a short sleeve shirt, a long sleeve shirt, a hat, a beer cozy, a patch, a shot glass, a keychain, a coffee mug, whatever you want to commemorate your trip to the Trinity site. <laughs> well, isn't that great? And these are very tastefully designed. I mean, you can get a, a coffee mug that says Fat Man with this big, like, bomb on it, okay. you know, the, the beautiful mushroom cloud explosion. Okay. So... <laughs> Let me ask you this. So earlier, Dylan, we were talking about the impact that Los Alamos has had on the general, on Albuquerque and the general region. And he talked about the so-called downwinders, people that as the result yeah. of this test and others were exposed to radiation because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And even though the, the site was chosen for its remoteness at the time, mid-1940s, even 50 miles away, there can be fallout. So yes. when I Google Trinity site, New Mexico, pictures of protesters with signs come up. Were those kind of yes. people there? Yes. So as you leave the site, as you're driving out at the exit, there were a group of maybe 10 to 15 protesters, people with signs mentioning I lived downwind from Trinity, mentioning the people that suffered from cancer, from disease as a result of the tests. Because you said it's still a working bomb range, but nobody tests exactly. uh, nuclear bombs above ground anymore, right? They do it underground. Isn't that the accepted I, standard? I haven't been briefed on where they test, you know, nuclear bombs. I, you know, I think I missed that day. <laughs> But look, I mean, the fact is these protesters. But the days when you would drop an H-bomb on an on a, uh, uninhabited Pacific island are over because the fallout still goes hundreds of miles away, right? 
I think we can all agree that you shouldn't get cancer because the U.S. military tested a bomb down the street from where you happen to mm -hmm. live, right? Like, can't normal people agree that that's probably not great? However, these protesters are treated as cranks. I mean, it's just like a couple of people outside the site where there's hundreds, if not thousands of people who have spent a lot of money to be at this place at this time. Right. Probably mostly college educated, probably make a lot of money to be interested in this type of thing. And they are probably, they consider themselves right thinking people, but they don't really seem to give a shit. Everyone just kind of drives past the protesters. Oh yeah, okay, people protesting, blah, blah, blah. Isn't Oppenheimer cool? Let's grab our tickets to the movie. <laughs> it's very sad. It's, it's very, very sad to me, the state of affairs, because, you know, you can make the argument that, well, it happened decades ago, but look, it's a cash cow. It is a major feature of the summer of 2023. They're making it relevant again. It's still influencing. The, if you turn on the news, it's still a major feature of the media landscape that we live in, the international situation that we live in. And these issues have not been meaningfully reckoned with. And the Trinity site certainly is not helping helping matters. But like I said, I am complicit in it because I was one of the, the gawkers. I showed up and I was part of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for that sentimental journey. Of course, of course. Through the... <laughs> The origin story of the of the nuclear bomb. My travelogue to Trinity. Anytime, anytime. The original reason to build the first atomic bomb was that the Germans were working on the very same thing in the early 1940s and were 12 to 18 months ahead of the U.S. in research on that project. Now, if the Germans did have the first atom bomb, the fear was they would attempt to control the world with it. But Germany underfunded their atom bomb research in favor of other things and ended up surrendering to the Allies for very conventional military reasons in April of 1945, months before the U.S. could even pull off a bomb test. So many of the scientists in Los Alamos said, hey, Hitler just killed himself. Germany surrendered. Our work here is done. But the other part of World War II was Japan, and they refused to surrender and adamantly stated they would not do so under any circumstances. They would fight to the last person. U.S. military authorities believed they would not surrender uh, unless they used this bomb. So the Trinity test was successful on July 15th, and they notified the White House immediately, and they scheduled the dropping of the bomb for only a few weeks later on August 6th. And the decision of how to drop the bomb, where to drop the bomb, on who specifically or on what city specifically was was covered in great detail in the movie and I presume in the book as well. But that's 
the anniversary. We're a day from, as we're recording this, a day from the 78th anniversary of doing that, of dropping a bomb on the human population, which killed 85,000 people instantly. And over the next couple of weeks, radiation killed. The total number of deaths was up to 150,000 for just Hiroshima. And then two days later, they had dropped another bomb on Nagasaki. President Harry S. Truman's address to the nation following the bombing of Hiroshima on August 6th. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We are now prepared to destroy more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake, we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. It was to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction that the ultimatum of July the 26th was issued at Potsdam. Their leaders promptly rejected that ultimatum. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. General impressions, I mean, nobody, everybody says, yeah, sure, I wish we didn't have to do it. But we did do it, or I shouldn't say we, it's not like you and I were there or anything, but uh, <laughs> um, the the country that we are citizens of did do it, and we bear responsibility for that. Yeah. So, I mean, coming out of the move, since we were so fresh, because everybody was sitting in a room and debating, you have the scientists who had actually invented this bomb are more on the side of, well, let's you know, drop it on an unoccupied island or something uh, to show its power. And then that will make the Japanese surrender. Or let's just tell them, warn them that we have it and say surrender or else rather than drop it on them by surprise. But they finally did settle on dropping it on a human population. They didn't drop it on Tokyo. So at least scratch that off the list. That would have been tens of millions of people. They dropped it on a, a small industrial city. So, you know, I guess there was a little bit of human consideration there. But where do you where do you sit on this issue? Well, I obviously sit on the side of they shouldn't have used it. But I, I understand the moral quandary at the time. I, I guess I could say this more with hindsight, but like saying if we try to get Japan to surrender, it will cost many, many lives of our own men and their men of just sort of battling it out and stuff. Why not just end it quickly? But I, I don't know why they wouldn't just warn them 
by dropping it on an uninhabited island. It still boggles the mind. I've seen a bit of a historical debate where the bomb wasn't so much the reason why the Japanese surrendered. It was more of the Soviet Union that started invading them from the north. And when, right. when that-, that, is, that is the present analysis is that when they entered the war, which was part of the plan, because yes. they do talk about the Potsdam Conference, yes. which was, took place right following the Trinity Test. And that's where Truman, without going into vast detail, told Stalin about the bomb. Yeah. And Stalin said, OK, if you guys can invade Japan at the same time, they'll know that their goose is cooked and they'll surrender. Yeah. And so... so did you need the weapon to do that? Because also they mentioned in the movie another historical fact that I think is forgotten because, you know, the atomic bomb is so terrifying. But many, many more thousands of people were killed in the fire bombings of Tokyo than the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined, I believe. That's true. They didn't. I, I don't know if they went into that in the movie. But, yeah, the, the fire bombing of Tokyo killed a quarter of a million people. Yeah. So, and s- I mean. Thousands of ordinances, but but collectively, it was more deadly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you could argue that the Japan was ready to sacrifice cities and human lives to continue fighting. But when there was a second invasion, it was more of a reality that the they wouldn't be able to last. But I'm trying to understand it without the context we have today of like, why you would have dropped the bomb. But I, I, I still don't think it was a, such a good idea. There is one moment in the movie where they're deciding where they want to drop it. And Defense Secretary Stimson has a list of 12 cities that they're considering dropping on. And then he goes, oh, 11. And he says, my wife and I honeymooned in Kyoto. It's a beautiful city. We shouldn't destroy that one. Yeah. And the whole theater, I think, takes a collective gasp in that moment of how oh, I guess I honeymooned there, so I won't, you know, destroy it with the nuclear arsenal. Well, he also says it's a, it's it's got tremendous cultural significance for the yeah. Japanese people. It's just so cavalier about... Like, you know, it's like, well, if we are so concerned about their welfare, why are we dropping a bomb on them? <laughs> it, is, it is bizarre. It's just so cavalier, the the choices that were made so it's 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 terrifying what what happened today as of the episode being released 78 years ago they make a lot of hay in the movie and the book about the fact that there was a soviet spy at los alamos which you know at the time oppenheimer vehemently denied even after the Soviets themselves had uh, detonated a bomb. But there was, and of course, a lot of that research was transmitted to the Soviets. And then there was the H-bomb, which, or the hydrogen bomb, which was 15, 20 times more powerful than the, the simple fission uh, and implosion bombs they used on Japan. And he was against, I mean, he had been developing it all along, but he was against its actual production, what do you make of that? And it ruined his career, right? I mean, that's because his opposition to an H-bomb ruined his career. It's sad in a way. I think he's probably right that we shouldn't have developed an H-bomb. But there was no way to stop it, right? It's sort of like what you were saying earlier. Yeah, and that's sort of what... I mean, as soon as they 
came up with fission in in general, somebody was going to make at least that kind of a bomb. Yeah, and then that that one person on the staff who was there right at the beginning was saying, "Well, let's." make an H-bomb instead using, you know, heavy water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they said, okay, well, let's start working on it. So they've been working on it all along. And, of course, the Nazis apparently had been working yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah. So it was going to get made by someone somewhere somehow. Obviously, we had a head start on everybody because of all the money and, and that had been invested at the Los Alamos, the Manhattan Project. But still... There is an irony there that the man who there's a Time magazine cover, which we may use the thumbnail, but it appears in the movie. It says uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. The father of the atomic bomb is against bomb 2.0. Yeah. The hydrogen bomb. I mean, he is the American Prometheus in a way. If you follow that story, he's chained to a rock. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and we should probably say what, uh, yeah, and they start the movie out. So Prometheus is a, Bernice, tell us what Prometheus is, because I don't remember exactly. <laughs> Certainly. In Greek mythology, Prometheus is best known for defying the Olympian gods by stealing fire from them and giving it to humanity in the form of technology, knowledge, and more generally, civilization. As punishment for stealing fire, Zeus, king of the Olympian gods, condemned Prometheus to eternal torment for his transgression. Yeah, it's, it seemed inevitable at a certain point. So here's the question. If we could go back in a time machine and if we could suppress, because Oppenheimer's idea was that, okay, if we go to the Russians and say, hey, guys, we could build this, which is sort of what Reagan did with the Star Wars program or tried to do, uh-huh. you know, decades later, we won't go ahead and actually build this if we both agree to not have a nuclear arms race. Yeah. So nobody builds the bomb. Or would that even be possible? I mean, do we, would we have a bomb-free world now? There's Right now, there's 13,000 nuclear warheads on planet Earth, enough to destroy every living thing uh, 50, 60 times over. Yeah. I don't know if we'd have a nuclear bomb-free world. I think it would just very depend. I, I think if you could look at the movie... The movie would argue that you really can't trust the politicians with the the fire that Prometheus gives them, in a way. They always want to use it for their own success, national political power, so on and so forth. And I think you could see that nowadays a little bit with something like North Korea, which is a country we tried to, over the years, say, we'll leave you alone if you don't have a nuclear war ahead. And we did this with other countries as well, like Iraq and stuff, and even with Libya and, you know, these countries that were having nuclear science programs, we sort of tried to make deals to eliminate them. And then later we invaded and killed their leaders and stuff. And it it seems like a protection blanket nowadays, where because North Korea has nuclear weapons, they're much more protected in a way from invasion because of the threat of the use of it back. And I think at some point, even if we tried to do our best to suppress the bomb, at some point America would feel the need for that in that world. And then Russia would feel the need and China would feel the need and NATO allies would start to feel the need. And, you know, you, you get to a point where you, I don't know if it would be as bad of an arms race as we had, because it was just about as bad of an arms race as you could have made. But I think at the very least, we still would have 
massive stockpiles. It is, but I mean, no one has has used a, a nuclear device on a human population yeah. uh, since 1945. I mean, it. I mean, so the idea that that people like um, uh, the Robert Downey Jr. character, yeah. the Louis Strauss, who had been the head of the Atomic Energy something something. You know, his idea was like, well, if everybody has one, that's deterrence. No one will use it. And as much as he turns out to be the sort of a villain in the movie and in real life, too, because of the way he blackballed Oppenheimer's career, revokes his security clearance, etc. It, it has so far worked out. Yeah. Nobody has dropped a bomb on anybody, even though people like Putin are still threatening to use them on an almost daily basis. Right. I mean, that's what it is. It's It's a threat for safety and deterrence and i don't necessarily think anyone really wants to use them but the threat of it is always still there in a in a terrifying way and so even if his strass is right you see oppenheimer's vision at the end where he thinks he created a chain reaction that will destroy the world at some point that reality is still there as well, even if it, if the deterrence has worked so far in a in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So, last question. I think we already touched upon this, but what if the U.S. had never made the bomb in the first place? Uh huh. What if they? I mean, because they they had a choice. There was that letter that was written by co-written by. I forget what the name of the scientist was, but but Albert Einstein was was sort of the key signature that was sent directly to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which triggered the funding of the Manhattan Project in the first place. They encouraged him to build a bomb because they believed that the Nazis were engaged in building a bomb, which turned out they weren't really. You know, they had they had done some research, but it was underfunded and a Jewish guy was in charge of the project. And so that sort of made it more difficult politically for anything to happen, you know, with a Jewish scientist in charge of something in Germany, in Nazi Germany. So if we hadn't have made it, if they just said, you know what, let's not do anything. Would that change anything or would it somebody else would have just inevitably have made it and and maybe. If if it was if it was a power like Japan or Germany or Italy under Mussolini or Mao's China, and they're the only ones that had it, would this world be a different place? Maybe. I I think with something so large and altering, it's hard to speculate about what another use case would be. But there would be a difference, I'm sure. I just, I have no idea what it would be. Well, Dylan, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it's time to close the Bombay doors on this episode, folks. In addition to my co-host, Bernice, I want to thank our amazing guests, Dylan Cuellar and Kasia Asa. Check out links to their podcast, Unburied Books, in the liner notes of this episode. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheep on your favorite pod platform and share it with all your friends. We'd also love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! You can reach us online at scandalsheetpod.com, Facebook, or Twitter, or just send us an email to contact at scandalsheetpod.com 
Scandalsheet.com. We'll see you next time on Scandalsheet. Epilogue. I thought of something that I wanted to talk about that I thought would be interesting to note on the movie side. Okay. That's okay. Please. Another thing about Albuquerque is, and New Mexico in general, is we do have a lot of engineers. And I can say that I have a known personal relationship where my father is a, a physicist. And there's more than one type of, there's more than just Oppenheimer in this movie. There, like every single major physicist gets a name drop somewhere in this movie. Right. And, and my dad was actually taught by one of the physicists in the Manhattan Project named Richard Feynman. Oh, which one? Richard Feynman. Well, he was at Caltech. Oh. And um, if you remember the movie, it's the guy that's played by Jack Quaid, who's like playing the bongos. Yeah. The whole yeah, time. the bongo guy. And he's like playing the bongos when the uh, explosion happens. And he's like, yeah, we did it. Bongo playing. <laughs> that was one of my dad's professors. So like. Oh, my God. You can. That's hilarious. Like. It, did he ever bring the bongos to class? I wouldn't be surprised. That guy was eccentric and. For as much as the movie itself focuses on Oppenheimer's womanizing, Feynman took womanizing to a level beyond Oppenheimer. So uh-huh. he was a crazy, free-spirited, free-love freak in a way. But he is sort of a scientist favorite kind of guy. And it, it is funny that like it even permeates in that way where I could almost say that my dad has taught me a lot about physics and he was taught physics by... One of the Manhattan Project guys. It's uh, kind of crazy. Right. So I just wanted that to know if, like, you wanted to splice that into the the movie discussion. Yeah, we somewhere. will. We'll definitely. Yeah, we've got to. Um, yeah, I'll I just thought figure out where it when Cassie was talking. I was like, oh, I cannot believe I forgot to write that down. I wrote all the stuff that like my friend had like told me about Lanel and like different thoughts on the movie. But like, I was like, oh. That's so good. And didn't even mention that your dad was a physicist? Boy. I know. What am I thinking? It's kind of a big point. It's sort of like, you know, if I went to Hollywood and said, oh, did I mention my dad was John Ford? <laughs> um, <laughs> whoops. Forgot about that one. Yeah. So let, thank you for letting me jump in and getting that recorded. Oh, no problem. Copyright 2023. Thad Helsley Media LLC. All rights reserved.